morning to Psalm 13, which is the fifth psalm in a series of ten messages this fall on the book of Psalms. I'm calling them Psalms of My Life because these are psalms that I've taught before, I've preached before, and most importantly, again and again, I find myself returning to these particular biblical poems for help and encouragement in my own life. So they are indeed psalms of my life. This morning in Psalm 13, we come to the topic of why and when God seems to not answer here and or answer our prayers. And even though it may seem funny, if Garth Brooks says, thank God for unanswered prayers, the experience of a seemingly silent and indifferent God is usually something that people are not thankful for. When prayers seem to be unheard or unanswered, it can create massive burdens for Christian strugglers and huge barriers for skeptical seekers. Is there a way to lighten such burdens for believing people? Is there a way to reduce the resistance or to lower the barrier for such skeptical but sincere seekers? I say sincere but skeptical seekers because there are some people for whom no amount of proof and no degree of answer to prayer would ever convince them to submit to God. Now, there are many ways to tackle the problem, but one solution, which you may not have tried before, is to find a new way to pray. I said there's many ways you can approach this, this question of how to deal with unanswered prayers, but one way is to find a new way to pray. What do I mean? Well, you may have heard, and we actually just prayed the Our Father, also known as the Lord's Prayer. We don't have evidence of Jesus himself praying this prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer in that sense. It's the prayer which the Lord taught his disciples to pray. We might call it the Disciples' Prayer. Did you realize that the Lord's Prayer isn't just a prayer? These aren't just words that Jesus wanted his disciples to pray. It's a form of prayer. It's actually a structure or an outline of prayer. If you look at this most famous prayer carefully, you'll notice that after addressing God in a specific way, our Heavenly Father... Jesus then lists a series of six requests or petitions. Let's see if we can number them. Hallowed be thy name. We're asking that God's name be reverenced or revered or, or made holy. It is a holy name. We're asking that we would live in such a way and that the world would be the kind of place where God's name is reverenced. Thy kingdom come. That's a prayer for the rule and reign of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done, a very similar, closely related petition, number three. May the will of God be done. And of course, with the advancing kingdom of God, we pray that along with that would be the advancing completion of the will of God. The fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. It's an asking for 
provision for our lives in the material sense, the bread that we need to eat, the food, the water, but it's also asking for all of our daily needs to be met. It's an acknowledgement of the needs of the body, the needs of the human person, shelter, friendship, care, companionship. Forgive us our debts or trespasses, maybe you learned it as I did growing up in the Methodist church. Forgive us our debts, forgive us asking for forgiveness is part of this prayer. And then asking God to lead us not into temptation, perplexing. Would God lead us into temptation? No, God would never do such a thing. We're saying that as he leads us, may he lead us in ways of success, victory, and blessing. And if and when temptations come, as Paul says in Corinthians, that he would provide the way out or strength to bear up under it. So this is a prayer which is a paradigm prayer. It's a, it's a model prayer. It's a structure for praying. When we start, we look to God the Father and we ask for God to be praised, for God's name to be reverenced and revered. And you don't need the exact words found in Matthew chapter 6 or the, the version of the Lord's Prayer in, in Luke chapter 10 to pray in the heart of the Lord's Prayer. And there's a very definite um, st structure of the Lord's Prayer where the first three petitions of the prayer are, are prayers for and about God. And then the last three petitions of the prayer are prayers for and about me and you and us, the people of God, the followers of Jesus. And then, of course, the Lord's Prayer ends with the kind of doxological praise, for thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever. This is one way to pray. Another way to pray, and it's actually loosely based on this, it's a way that I learned when I was in college, actually, Will, when I was in a campus ministry in college, I learned to pray the, the so-called ACTS method of prayer, A-C-T-S. Each letter of this word stands for uh, an action that we do in prayer. Have you heard of this? Acts. A stands for adoration. So you begin a prayer in a pattern of adoring God. You see, it loosely follows the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer begins with adoration. Our Heavenly Father, your eyes look up, your, your heart turns heavenward, your attention turns away from yourself. You adore Almighty God. Hallowed be thy name is an adoration. Holy, holy, holy is the song, the unending song of the angels in heaven. It's a way of adoring. To adore means to love. I love you, Lord. My strength is a refrain in many of the Psalms. So in giving us a, an axe pattern for prayer, what is the message that's being communicated? The message that's being communicated is prayer needs to begin with God. And we're too prone, like toddlers, to come with a world that simply extends about an inch and a half past our nose and our ears and our eyes. We are the center of our own world. And so Acts teaches us to begin with adoration. Then C is confession. In the Acts model for prayer, we're confessing our sins to God. We adore him and his glory and his beauty and his majesty. And it's only right and proper. And it's very... Uh, it's, it's, it's almost a, a reflex of adoring God is to look down at your own hands and say, I am a sinner. 
forgive me for my sins, Lord. A, C is confession. Then T, thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for me. Before we ask for things from God, we thank God for the things that he has given us. We're too prone, aren't we, to look at the things we don't have than the things that we do, the glass half empty, spiritual problem. And then with the S then is supplication in the Acts model for prayer. Adoration, confession is C, thanksgiving is T, and then supplication. That's just a fancy word for help. To supplicate is to ask. And there's a a sense that when you're supplicating someone, you're coming as a low person to a high person, a poor person to a wealthy, rich, endowed person, a, a needy to a strong person, a weak person. You're coming when you supplicate, asking things of the Lord. These are two ways to pray. And I can see the pattern of Acts, the Acts pattern. I can sort of see that, not exactly, in the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you know other ways to pray. But how do you pray when God is silent? What do you say in prayer when God is not answering? There is nothing wrong with these two approaches to God in times of apparent silence or the seeming indifference of the Almighty to your situation or your circumstances. But the Psalms, which are not only called the songbook of the church, and we, we as a church regularly sing them, and I am so grateful for our worship team that regularly introduces us to the language of the Bible in our singing. And not just snippets, but long passages of Scripture we sing out loud as a church. Thankful for that. But it's not just the songbook, the Psalms. Bonhoeffer called it the prayer book of the Bible, and it is that. And in the prayer book of the Bible this morning in Psalm 13, I believe we have a new way to pray. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word as we think about this new way to pray. This is to the choir master in Psalm 13, the Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. So far, the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your scriptures. And what is before us this morning may indeed for some of us, for many of us perhaps, be a new way to pray, particularly in times when you seem distant 
or unresponsive to our very real needs. So hear us now, Lord, as we ask for your help. Give me your help as a preacher, and may each one of us as listeners hear you speaking through the Word of God as it is explained. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this new way to pray, we begin with complaining. This is my first point, to complain. And that's startling. That's probably what's most new about this way of prayer. But if you look at verses 1 and 2, it's not 1, not 2, not 3, but 4 questions which are really just disguised complaints. You could turn them into statements. It's too long, God. And then each phrase finishes in the way that it finishes. It's too long. You have forgotten me forever. It's too long to hide your face from me. I have taken counsel in my soul and I've had sorrow in my heart all the day for too long, too many days. And it's too long that my enemy has been exalted over me. In these questions, which are complaints to God, David the prayer is saying or expressing at least three important truths. First of all, when he says it's too long, he's saying that this is not the way that the world is supposed to be. David is saying, I know how the world is supposed to be, and this is not it. He's also saying, the world won't always be this way. When he says it's too long, or when he asks how long, the implication is that he knows it can't go on forever. It shouldn't go on forever. It wasn't meant to go on forever. There will come an end, and he's ready for it, which is the third thing. This may be obvious, but I think it needs to be stated. I don't like the way that the world is at the moment. Not only is it not right, but I don't like the way that it is. It's difficult for me. It's too difficult for me. I don't want to continue in this situation. The circumstances need to change, and they need to change now. That's what David's saying. These three truths then, which he expresses when he complains to God, the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. The world won't always be this way, and I can't take it anymore. What this means, I think, in this new way to pray is that you are being invited by this scripturally inspired example of King David to express these kinds of truths to God. Now I say invited, that may be too, too weak. I think we are being commanded to communicate to God in this way. This is a right and proper precept for prayer. It is instruction how to pray, the omission of which is disobedience. This is a new way to pray. Now, I want to offer a couple of caveats, or I guess maybe cautions, as we uh, consider this first way to pray, which is complaining. The first one is, I want you to notice that in David's complaints, how deeply theological and God-centered they are. 
So the first caution is that while we are commanded to pray in this way, I believe, David's praying is deeply God-centered and theological. So when you complain to God, you're complaining in a sense, I cannot do this, but God can. You're admitting in this sort of complaint that you're coming to the one who holds all power in his hands. The only way your sorry state can be altered, the needed, much needed changes that you feel you require can come about, or the sorry state of the world that we live in, the only way those things can be adjusted or improved is through God. And so we complain to God. But it isn't just God. A second caveat, a second caution here is that we're complaining to a specific God. And we live in a society where all paths lead to God. It would seem that as long as you're sincere in your belief, even if you're sincere in your unbelief, then you're going to be fine. But that's not true for David. The only God that you may complain to is the sovereign God of Israel whose name is Yahweh or Jehovah. You see it here in the Bible, and I've mentioned this in a couple of sermons in this series, with the capital, with the word capital L-O-R-D, all capital letters. This is Jehovah God. When Moses met God at the burning bush, he said, how should I know the, the one who has sent me to the people? He says, I am that I am. He revealed the divine name, Jehovah. And the word I am in Hebrew, when you add vowels and spell it out, is Yahweh or Jehovah. What this means is because David just isn't complaining to a God. He is complaining to the God who has revealed himself to David and all of God's people having chosen elected them, set them apart for himself, placed his name upon them, entered into a relationship with them, and called them his own. He, he permitted them to call him their God, and he owned them as his people. This is the God to whom David complains. When you adopt then this new way to pray, particularly when you begin complaining, biblically complaining, you are complaining to the God who has sovereignly chosen, elected, called, and loved you for himself. That's who you speak to. He has owned you as his child. And it's as a child then to a father that you say, God, Yahweh, Father, the world is not the way that it's supposed to be right now. Father, God, Jehovah, I know the world is not going to always be this way. And Father, I can't handle this. That's who you're speaking to. So your complaints aren't only to be God-centered, they are, but they're to have this relational, covenantal character. There's a boldness about it. There's a familiarity about it. There's a, a confidence about it. 
because God has made promises to you as a covenant-keeping Jehovah. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not abandon you. I am at work in your life and in the life of the world to bring about a, a glorious reality which has not yet transpired. Covenant, you see, is the biblical world for a divinely initiated and divinely maintained relationship between a creator God and a created people. And the third caveat here, not only are David's complaints God-centered and covenantal in character, we can say relational, but they're reverential. They have reverence. I think this may be the most difficult part of the new way to pray because complaining doesn't seem reverential. It doesn't seem right. But it is. While it may not feel dignified to approach Almighty Creator with complaining, it is because we have it before us in this psalm, and not only this psalm, but the vast majority of the psalms contain at least some elements of this sort of lament or complaint. So how do you complain in a reverential way? Well, I think it goes without saying that raw is required. We're not looking for the edited version of your feelings. God knows them already, so give voice to them in a raw and, if I may say so, unedited fashion. If, if you refuse to be raw with God or real with God, you will border on being dishonest with God and the power of your prayer will drain. It will drain out like a, like a leaky gas tank and you'll wind up stalled in the middle of the road. This is the very thing you want to avoid when God is seemingly absent or seemingly indifferent or, or unresponsive to your prayers. Perhaps our sinful response is to maybe clean up our prayers and make them more conducive to Sunday school. Complaint, you see, is a form of prayer which is irreducibly honest. If you're not honest... It doesn't qualify. And though thus in complaint you express your honest frustrations to God, but reverential isn't just raw, it is also respectful. In expressing our honest frustrations to God, we must not fail to be respectful as well. Showing reverence or respect in your frustrations is a key ingredient here. Look at how David does this. He says, do not forget me forever. But in asking this, he's admitting that, God, that the power of remembering him belongs to God. And he's coming as a, as a supplicant, as we saw in that first pattern of prayer in ACTS. And he uses the covenant name of God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I think other aspects of respect sort of trickle out of this psalm when you, when you look at it. I think there's, a, there's an implication here that David actually believes in God. Like he believes in prayer 
And a covenant-keeping God is a God who hears and answers prayers. And so there's a fundamental belief he may be struggling or at odds with himself at some level, some inner tension. But he believes in God, in the existence of God. There's something here also about the, the love of God, which is easily missed. Look at the love of God that comes out. How long will you hide your face from me? I love you, God. Your face is... Is the, the light of your countenance is the very epitome of blessing. There's nothing in life I desire more than the shining, radiant face of God. How long must I live in the shadow, Lord? I love you. That's a passionate declaration of love. And there is hatred here. Yeah, hatred. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This is, this is hard because we tend to mistake enemies. We go to the one extreme and say, God wants me to love everybody, and so apparently I have no enemies. But that doesn't work because you now have set the love of God as an opposite to the holy justice of God, and that will never do. Or we can go to the other extreme and we say, I hate that person. And just assume that God is going to sort of jump on the, the bandwagon of your personal vendettas. And so stuck with these extreme tendencies, I think some of us just don't pray at all. But there is a profound hatred for the ways of the world and the enemies of God in this psalm. And so by asking him, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me, David has already done some construction work in his own soul to make sure as best as he can that he is allied and aligned with God and God's ways. So I love righteousness and I hate wickedness. How long will my and your enemies, God, how long will they go unpunished? By the way, it's at this point that you need to read Psalm 12. Because Psalm 12 gives a picture of the righteous and the wicked. And Psalm 12 and Psalm 13 deserve to be read together. So this is a new way to pray, and it begins with complaining. I think that's the hardest part of this kind of prayer. The other two perhaps are a little more familiar, but, but they look different when they are followed, when they follow complaint. The second, then, is to request. First, we complain, and then we request. We see the request in verses 3 and 4 of our passage. First, three things. First, David says, consider and answer. He asked that God would look at him. The consideration and the asking for the light of the eyes is an, a request that God would not turn any longer, that God would no longer turn his face from him who's praying, 
but he would consider him, that he would see him, see me, Lord. I love it in the Gospels when, when Jesus is walking around and he looks at somebody and he sees the widow. He sees the child. And the disciples are all, they've got their agenda, they're doing their thing or whatever they're doing and they rarely see what Jesus sees. Notice when you read the Bible, when you're reading in the Gospels, notice when Jesus sees someone. What a thing it is to be seen by Jesus. This appeal for God to look is an ironic contrast to his apparent forgetting in verse 1. Will you forget me forever? In the deepest perplexity, we are being shown here that there is still room to ask. Not just still room. It may be the best time to ask. Isaiah 63 says this in the NIV 15 and 16, Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might, your tenderness and your compassion are withheld from us? But you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. The anguish that leads to this request. And the second request isn't just consider and answer, but this phrase, light up my eyes, I, I'm seeing this as a, as a request to spare my life. The, the eye is the lamp of the body, and when the eye is extinguished, the body is dead. So David is, is warning God in a way, not that God needs the information, but that's the, the mystery of prayer is that we're telling God what he already knows and believing that God will hear us as we tell him and act according to his sovereign will which he has known from before the foundation of the world. Your prayers then become the instrument of the outworking of the divine plan. And so he says, I'm about to die. I'm praying for my life. Spare my life. He's asking for a renewal of his life, a refreshment to his mortal body, perhaps his heart, his mind as well. And then we've seen this already a little bit, the the third request here is don't let the enemies boast. Don't let the enemies of God win. Lest my enemies say in verse 4, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Shaking in the Bible isn't like a, it, it has to do with uh, not on a solid foundation. Something that's, that's tottering a building that is about to fall. Now, a couple of caveats need to be noted here in this new way to pray when it comes to requests. Notice David asks for an answer, but he doesn't demand an answer. There is in his asking an openness and a realization that it's not his ultimately to get the answer. It's his job to ask. And this shows a great deal of restraint for someone who might be about to die. I think this is so because the complaint, because it is raw but reverential, expressing his belief in God, his love for God, his hatred of the ways of the world and the enemy of God. I believe that these things have a strengthening effect. 
And so the reason our requests are so weak and tepid and, and lifeless, the reason our prayer lives, perhaps, perhaps, are so impotent, is that we haven't gone through the transformation of a holy biblical complaint as David does here. In other words, if the complaint admits that the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be, and it isn't going to always be this way, and that you don't like the way it is at the moment, by complaining to the Creator and covenant-keeping Redeemer, you acknowledge that you can't change it yourself, only God can, and you're professing your faith that He will. He will. And even if it means that you forfeit your life, you're not going anywhere else with this request. I may get to this further, but we're not sure at what point in David's life that this psalm was kind of capturing his his personal tragedy. It is, it is a personal prayer. It's, an indiv- it's what's called an individual prayer of lament. We have some corporate or some, some community laments in the Psalms. This is an individual prayer. It's very well suited for each one of us to pray individually. Some think that it may be when David was running from hidey hole to hidey hole, trying to get away from Saul, who was pursuing his life, and had guards stationed throughout the land looking for a glimpse of David and then they, I found him over here, and then Saul would run over and try to get him, and David would escape again. We're learning about a new way to pray this morning, and the first step in this way to pray is to complain. The second is to request. In verse 5, we see finally, 5 and 6, that David confesses. He doesn't confess sin here, but by confession I mean that he says what is true about God. Take a look at the text. It says, first, I have trusted in your steadfast love. And the commentators observe on this the past tense of the word trust. I have trusted and am trusting and will continue to trust. So in the midst of David's horrible circumstances, where he feels like his life is hanging from a thread, he ends this this prayer, this new way to pray, with a reaffirmation of his trust in God in the past. The only way I thought to explain this is it's almost as if he had faith in his faith. as weak and shaky and unsteady as it was, David says, I have trusted. It may be just just a feather of a pulse, but I have trusted. I'm I'm reminded of the man, do you you believe that I can heal your son? And what what does the man say? He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, it's a mixed bag, Lord. I kind of believe. I'm struggling to believe. I haven't believed, but I have trusted in your unfailing love. And notice that it's 
The steadfast love, if you write in your Bibles, underline that. It means covenant love. The Hebrew word is hesed. It's the specific love of Jehovah God. The great I am shows steadfast love. So they they often appear together in the Bible. The Lord Jehovah shows steadfast love or unfailing love or never-ending love, covenant love. And it's steadfast because the God who is underwriting this love is a God who never changes. That's why it's steadfast. So it isn't really faith in faith because that would be kind of ridiculous. It's faith in the steadfast love of God, the only thing that I can trust, I've trusted. I mentioned Saul seeking out David, the the verse for your reference here, if you want to look up that story or some of those stories, 1 Samuel twenty-two fourteen. Quote, Saul sought David every day in the wilderness of Ziph, but David escaped him. But I don't think it has to be that someone's actually seeking your life. I think any situation, even if you're a child, this psalm has multiple applications. Enemies may be literal, in which case literal warfare or literal persecution may be in view. Or the psalmist may be near death's door. It may be physical sickness. It may be mental anguish. Whatever it is, the exaltation of the threat of an enemy is the basis for David's prayer. But second, not only is David trusted in the past, I have trusted, he makes a promise about the future. He anticipates praise. So he's trusted God in the past. He confesses that he has trusted in God's love. And then he confesses or he promises to sing God's praise in the future. I will sing, it says, I will rejoice, I shall rejoice in verse 5. I will sing to the Lord. This doesn't mean that David isn't able at the moment to sing or rejoice. It might mean that. It might mean that as this prayer is resolved, he's going to get his voice back. He's going to get his, his, the pep in his step is going to come back. It may mean that. I think it may simply mean David is anticipating God will indeed answer the prayer, but the answer hasn't yet come. And the final, the final part of confession He confesses his trust in the past. He confesses his determination to sing in the future. And then he acknowledges what God has already done in verse 6. He has dealt bountifully with me. Kidner says that he has dealt bountifully is said in the past tense as an indication of David's confidence that once it's all over, once the situation is over, he will have something to sing to the Lord. David has looked around him in all of the grim situation or circumstances, and he looks at all the ways that God has already helped him, already provided for him, worked many wonders in his life, even up until this now, up, up until this time. Our, our translation, the ESV, says he has dealt bountifully. He has been generous with you. He has given you a substantial reward already. He has been generous in making you, informing you as a beautiful person. You're unique. You're not 
the beauty in a magazine, the beauty of a, of a TV show. You are a uniquely beautiful human being made in the image of God. He has rewarded you. He has blessed you in saving you and bringing you the knowledge of the scriptures and placing you children in a Christian home with perfectly imperfect parents as we rediscover in our family every single day. He's been generous with you in providing you a, a church, a school, a home school, a great country that we live in, far from perfect, but it's a great country that we live in. The land of our pilgrimage is a land of freedom, freedom to worship and freedom to travel, to buy and to sell, to work at a job of your choosing. He has abundantly provided for you in giving you family and friends and either a prospect of a future career if you're a student, you're excited about what you may do for a career, or if you have graduated from some institution or a training program, you're actively engaged in using your hands or your mind or both to make a blessing for the world. He has been bountiful for you. So while your losses are heavy in this current trial, your gains outweigh them. And even the losses themselves may be viewed as a kind of bounty from God. Have you thought about that? That if it weren't for the thing that you're yearning for or, or longing for or pining for or craving for a father, a mother, a job, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a, a wife, a home, a new job, a, a different church, a, a alleviation of mental stress or anxiety, fear, addiction, whatever it may be, if, if those things weren't there, would you be complaining to God in the first place? Wouldn't you, as, as I so often do, become self-satisfied? convinced in my own mind that I have made all these things for myself because I'm really clever and good-looking. And God temporarily turns his face from me and reminds me without the rays of his countenance shining upon my life, I am nothing, I can do nothing, and am destined for destruction. And so the great Christians, the men and women, the saints, the giant saints, have always understood that the hiding of the countenance of God and the seemingly turning down of the volume of the answers to the prayers that we seek are part of the process of becoming more and more like Christ as we learn to walk by faith in difficult circumstances. And as one old Puritan said, that when we kiss the rod, it falls from his hand. When we embrace our, these inward trials and these outward crises as coming from the Lord, at some level, they lose their potency over us. I've said before that uh, C.S. Lewis, in his marvelous book, The Great Divorce, explains that the hardships of this world are the only hell that a believer will ever know. And the blessings of this world are the only heaven that an unbeliever will ever know. I suspect if you're a believer this morning, the heavy weight of your unanswered prayers are quite a burden. God has brought you Psalm 13 this morning to give you a lightening of the load, to show you that there is a new way to pray, a different way to pray than perhaps you've been praying 
to make the burden of the seeming silence of God easier or more clear or more explicable. On the other hand, if you're a sincere skeptic this morning, I am inviting you to picture your hardship, the specific hardship that I'm talking about that you're dealing with, or hardship in general, as something that is larger than you can possibly grasp or comprehend. It's part, it's a piece of the puzzle in a larger story that you have not been shown. And you are being invited to bring your frustrations and anguish and even anger about that hardship to the Lord himself. When I began my message this morning, I mentioned the despair of unanswered prayer. Luther, when he's commenting on this psalm, says of Psalm 13, though hope itself despairs, despair then begins to hope. This is actually a way of thinking about the gospel. Though hope itself despairs, at that point, despair can begin to hope. It wasn't, you see, until Jesus was rigor mortis, stone cold, dead in the tomb, no pulse, no heartbeat, no movement, dead. For three days, that life emerges from the clutches and the jaws of death, and hope is renewed. And so the path of Christ is the path of Psalm 13 where we see that hope has to die in order that it may live. And as you feel the death throes, the pangs of death, you are to complain to God because death is not right. It isn't part of the order that He made. But as you complain, you are to complain to God, the covenant-keeping God, who would no more let you languish a second longer than you need to in this trial then he would leave his son in the grave. And just as surely as he raised Jesus from the dead, you will rise to eternal life. He has dealt bountifully with us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for teaching us, encouraging, challenging us this morning. I do pray especially for that one that woman or man, a boy or a girl who has a heavy burden, that this morning's word would be a word of hope, a lightening of the load. And I pray for those of us who are coming in this morning as Christian believers, I ask God that you would help us to fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love, and to carry that burden the very least to know what the burdens are that are that are represented for those that are listening this morning we need to be close enough to know what our burdens are and then to help carry that burden none of us are designed to carry it alone i thank you for the students that are making church a priority in their lives they're learning that they can't go through an education lord and carry the burdens by themselves they need a community of faith i thank you for the moms and the dads and the young children who are diligently listening to the preached word. Thank you that they're learning, even at a young age. But Lord, they are bound to face trials and struggles ahead that they can't even imagine at this point in their life. And Lord, finally, I want to pray for that skeptic who I've talked about. I pray that 
that he or she will be sincere, not a mocker or a scoffer, but sincerely seeking you. I pray that the barrier or the resistance to prayer would have been lowered this morning as we see that there might be a different way to pray, a new way to pray, which could trigger or open up whole new vistas of understanding and faith. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.